Our scripture today is out of Job 37, verses 5 through 13. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. And he says to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that everyone he has made may know his work. He stops all people from their labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. This is the word of the Lord for us. Good morning, church. What a joy it is to gather in fellowship, to worship the Lord, to seek him in prayer, and now to study his word. Before we get into the sermon, I do just want to make a comment about this event we did this past week, which was a binge read the Bible event, (laughs) where we started a week ago last Sunday um, with reading in Genesis and completed it on Wednesday evening. So we read round the clock, 24-7, through the night. We had people, volunteers coming in at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., taking their turn reading the scriptures. I'm just so pleased. I'm so impressed. I'm so amazed uh, at our church family uh, and the ways that uh, you all participated in that and, uh, and helped with that. It was just really a great event. It was, it was awesome. It was a blessing to us and uh, it honored God. In fact, one person said, we should do this every year. We should do this every year. I love that attitude. I love that heart. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the ways that you cheerfully showed up and made sacrifices in order to share the life-giving power of Jesus through reading the scriptures. So, uh, just amazing. We read every single page. We read every word in the scriptures. The genealogies, the laws, even the books of poetry. And that's where we're going to key in today as we continue with our Binge Read the Bible Summer Sermon Series. This unique genre of biblical literature Uh, of the the biblical books of poetry, and that's where we're going to key in today. So let me introduce myself. I'm John. I serve as lead pastor here. I'm thrilled to have you with us. I pray that through our time together, your heart and home grow stronger in the Lord. So I'm going to be real upfront about this particular genre and the message this morning, and that is that through it, God reveals to us his wisdom. And he reveals his wisdom to us in very creative ways, like like in uh, these... uh, songs and poems of the Bible. So why do we need such literature? Why do we need this part of the Bible? Well, uh, because we need guidance, because we need wisdom, we need help. uh, Or when we're experiencing suffering, the poetic books give us a a language to walk through that. We, We need to be able to live wisely, live with wisdom. And that's what these books do. Why is wisdom so important? Because life is complicated. Wisdom is important because we need to be able to discern right and wrong and how to navigate in the world. And I'm not just talking about the hot-button political issues. (laughs) Even just in our own uh, emotions, in our own relationships. When crisis hits, 
How do we navigate that? When sickness happens, when, when life's choices are before us and we find ourselves crippled, life is complicated. We need wisdom. Sometimes we experience fear and anxiety and, and uncertainty, and sometimes we, we second-guess everything. We need wisdom to know how to handle our finances. We need wisdom to know how to parent our children and how to love our spouse and how to solve the problems that we're facing. We do need wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong. And we live in a world and in a culture where those lines seem like they're very blurred and very confused by those around us. And here's what I say to that. We can't look at the world and just say, well, they don't have any morals. They don't have any values. I don't think that's actually true. When I, when I look at the secular culture in which we find ourselves, it's not that, that this generation, that this culture doesn't have a sense of moral justice. They actually do. That they actually do have a, a, some semblance or idea of, of values or morals or justice or right and wrong. It's just that their standards for what is right and wrong is completely arbitrary to our biblical worldview. Their standards of what is right, what is wrong, what is justice, what is truth, it's not founded on biblical principles. And so what happens then is it just becomes whatever your pet topic is. And so that's why we see the world that's uh, so enraged and so angry because they think that there's some wrong being perpetrated. They, they think there's, there's something awry. There's, they think there's something wrong. So it's not that they don't have a set of values. It's just that their set of values is not through a biblical lens. It's through this sense of, well, this is something I care about, and so therefore I'm going to get upset about it. So, you know, then we have the, it is so offensive to call the little children's toy a Mr. Potato Head because we don't know what gender he identifies with. But they're enraged about that because it's sort of this pet issue. <laughs> it's hard not to laugh about something like that because it's a potato toy. <laughs> But you see, we, we live life looking at it through a biblical lens, and the, the Bible tells us what's right and what's wrong. The Bible would tell us the truth and help us to discern that. And so when I say we need wisdom, especially as we look at the next generations coming behind us who, who, are, who are being more subjected to these, these ideas, I mean we need wisdom. So praise God. That he supplies it in his written word. In fact, James 1 verse 5 tells us this very clearly. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Oh God, give us wisdom. And so we're going to get into the books of biblical poetry this morning. This is kind of a broad sweeping overview. Really, this whole sermon series, it's, it's hard to, we can't preach through every text in all 66 books. And so these are a lot of uh, broad sweeping overviews as we've broken the Bible down into different genres. But there are six books in the Bible that fall into this category. Those are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and then the Book of Lamentations. And these books of biblical poetry highlight spiritual and practical insights for wise living for the people of God. And they are surprisingly relevant. They, they are surprisingly applicable. 
And again, the, the, way, the way we view these books is that these, these books of poetry show God's beautiful wisdom for our lives. And I want to point out, wisdom is more than just knowledge. Knowledge is maybe having the information and the understanding, but wisdom is applying that knowledge or information to a given situation or circumstance. Like when you find yourself living in the year 2022, and the world is very upside down, and people are very confused. So the, the concepts and ideas from biblical poetry are not just theories or philosophies or highbrow concepts. They, they are offering to us, very creatively, wisdom for day-to-day living, practical day-to-day living. So Proverbs 9 and verse 10 states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we, we declare and embrace and understand that this all begins with God. That ultimate wisdom is only in God and through God. And so it begins with him. It must start with God. And, and this is kind of the most crucial trait when it comes to seeking wisdom for our lives. It's not just the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge. It's a pursuit of God. It is, well, so this is the biblical teaching. It's the fear of the Lord. It is a recognition of who God is and a reverence and an awe and a respect for the all-powerful creator God of heaven and earth. So, when we talk about biblical poetry, I mentioned the six books that fall under that genre, but did you know that there's poetry in all of the other sections as well? That, that, that is to say, poetry is not just limited to the books of poetry, but we see it in other places as well, in all of the other genres of scripture. In fact, one-third of the entire Bible is poetic. One-third of the entire Bible is in some form of artistic poetry, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's been written with great imagination, and so I believe it's to be studied the same, with great imagination. And so what I want to do is share a, a healthy approach to viewing biblical poetry. And I think a healthy approach begins with understanding that God wants us to understand this biblical poetry. God wants us to understand it. We can't just pull the, uh, well, I guess it's just a mystery card. We can't say, you know, poetry, not my thing. I'm out. Like, not, not my thing. I'm just going to skip that part. Remember, these are God's words. The, the, these are the holy scriptures, just as much as any other book of the Bible, even if they seem confusing at times. And, and, and in a way, it's really beautiful and attractive to us to come to the books of biblical poetry because they reveal the mind and the priorities and the heart of God. And so, before we do anything else, I want to share a few practical tips for how to study poetry. And really, these practical tips would apply to other genres of scripture as well. In fact, last fall, we did a course here at MCA called How to Study the Bible. We had 15 individuals complete that course. Um, so some of this will be a reminder to you who took that course. It will sound familiar. But l let's talk about some practical tips for studying the scriptures, you know, for when we get into these poetic books. So it begins with identifying the genre. 
So at the end of this sermon series, I hope that you would be able to articulate these six different genres of Scripture. So when you come to a passage, maybe you're reading in your Bible, you ask yourself, what is the genre here? Is this law? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it gospels? Is this a letter? When you really become a student of Scripture, then you, you start to dig even deeper than that, I should probably say, that there are, there are sub-genres within those. Um, you know, within prophetic literature, you might have apocalyptic. That's a sub-genre of prophecy. Or within history, you might have a biography. Or within a letter, you might have uh, exposition as well as narrative. Within the Gospels, you have the unique uh, sort of literary genre of parable that Jesus often told. But identifying which genre of scripture is really a good first step in approaching biblical poetry or any other passage of scripture for the matter. And really, that's where a good working knowledge of all 66 books of the Bible is helpful. So one of the things we've done with our family is we've encouraged our kids to memorize the books of the Bible. Uh, in fact, I've asked our uh, three of our daughters if they would be willing to uh, share those with us this morning. So Adelaide and Helen and Catherine, will you come up? So I've asked them to recite all 66 books of the Bible for us from memory. So are you girls ready for that? Okay. Get nice and close. Yep. That's good. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. Awesome. Thank you so much, girls. Great job. And what a great challenge for all of us. Uh, commit those books of the Bible to memory. Have a good working knowledge so that when you're about to read a passage of Scripture, you're going to do Bible study, you can say, well, I know that this is one of the prophets. So this is prophecy, and I'm going to approach my study then in that way. So um, you know that when you're reading in the Proverbs that this is biblical poetry. This is wisdom literature. Um, these are, uh, the, the Proverbs are these short, pithy, little ancient sayings that very concisely offer principles for wise living. And so right off the bat, you know, these should be read as principles. So there's an interesting uh, kind of uh, play here. When you're coming to the Proverbs, you read these as these are principles. They're true. But we don't necessarily read them as God's promises. What I mean is we read them more as descriptive than prescriptive. Um, the wisdom of a biblical proverb is it's descriptive, meaning it is going to give a picture or describe how things should be. It's not necessarily prescriptive as in like uh, those would be the commands of Jesus or the New Testament teaching on how to live under the lordship of Christ. And so 
when the, uh, an example, when the Proverbs say that the righteous care for the needs of their animals, that's a proverb, the righteous care for the needs of their animals, that doesn't mean that if you have no animals or pets in your home, it's like, we better go out and get that pet chinchilla because the Bible says that we've got to care for the needs of our animals. So, th- so that's, it's not prescriptive. It's more descriptive. It is not prescribing for us as followers of Jesus that we must pursue animal husbandry. It's a principle. And the, the principle is that the wise are diligent in managing their household, that they are faithful in keeping up with the responsibilities that have been trusted to them. So that's the biblical principle. So how did we, how did we discern that? Well, because we knew it, it was a proverb. We knew the biblical genre and how we should approach it. We were able to determine that because we knew the genre. So it begins there with identify the genre. Okay, second tip for studying scripture is to consider the context. This is understanding that verse or, or that passage or even that chapter within the broader context. So there's a really easy, really simple, really effective way, the best way to make sure we're reading in context. And I'll tell you what that is. Read the larger portions of scripture that surround it. That's the best way to guard against pulling things out of context. So that might mean you read the chapter before and the chapter after. That might mean that if you're looking at a certain passage or certain uh, part of it, you read the whole You you read the whole book, and then you understand where that part fits. So we've got to consider the context. You spend spend time understanding the things that surround that particular verse. If you don't, what might happen? You're just sort of plucking it out of context. And this happens all the time in our world, right? So it's um, when some celebrity or leader or politician, and you see the sound bite, you see the headline, and you're like, she said what? But then you go back and you listen to the interview, and you're like, oh, it's not nearly as inflammatory. It was pulled out of context, right? And you often have uh, people that are accusing the media of that. Well, they pulled it out of context, that's not really what I was saying, because you can, you can pull out a few words and make it sound like it's something that wasn't actually said. It sounds juicy. It sounds inflammatory. Well, we can do the same thing with the Bible if we just pull out a verse without understanding the whole. And so this is what we would call a literary context as we're studying scripture, the literary context of a Bible verse. But there are other contexts as well. There are, there are many layers that are influencing a certain passage. So like historical context or cultural context, geographical context, where on planet Earth, where within their culture was this happening? Theological context, what is, what is the main idea? What is the message that's being said? These are all things that are important. You, you ask, what are the factors that are influencing this particular moment? So let me just say this as we talk about uh, biblical poetry. To read the book of Lamentations... And the beautiful poetry that's there without understanding and acknowledging its context. And the context, of course, is Israel is being overtaken by their enemies. They're being conquered. This is a context surrounded with violence and bloodshed and suffering and despair. And yet they are holding on. Jeremiah is the one who wrote it. He's holding on to hope that God will restore them. And so understanding the context really influences the way we understand and read 
those passages. And, so, and of course, uh, Lamentations 3, there are a couple verses there that are the most famous. You probably have them on your wall at home. Because of the great, Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right? In all the preceding verses, right there even in Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah is writing about their affliction, their anguish, their pain, their sorrow. He even directs some of that right at the Lord. He says, the Lord mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. And so then when you get to those verses in 21 and 22 where he says, but God is faithful and his mercies are new every morning. We're reading it in context. And really it becomes even more powerful when we do so. So please consider the context. Number three, this step for studying the scriptures is to compare with other verses. This is a really uh, strong and beautiful way to study the Bible. That is to say, what does the Bible say? The rest of the Bible say about this. Uh, this is sort of cross-referencing. We, we line up a passage of Scripture or, or a teaching, right, or, or a particular uh, interpretation of Scripture, and we line it up with all of the other Scriptures. What does the rest of the Bible say? Does my understanding of this passage align with those? Does, does the Bible continue to be consistent? Because the Bible does not contradict itself. It works together to tell one big story of God's redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. So you consider what other verses say, you cross-reference, and is this faithful to the story and the narrative of the entire arc of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation? Okay, tip number four for studying biblical poetry is to perform word studies. You look up key words. What, what are those words in the passage that are repeated or that jump out or seem to be emphasized? You might even look up what it is in the original language and what are the nuances of how that word was used and, and uh, the, the, the meaning, the significance, where it's used in other places. This is a rich tool for studying the scriptures is to do a word study. Take a key word and understand it more fully and how it's being used. Okay, fifth tip for how we're studying biblical poetry, and that is to discern figurative language. <laughs> this one's really important because when you read the poetry of the Bible, it's a lot of word pictures and creative ways of expressing the truth. And so we've got to learn to distinguish figurative language. Do we always read the Bible literally? Lakota just graduated from Rosedale Bible College and is pretty passionately saying, no, no, no. Like he's, he is begging MCA right now that no one says, yeah. We don't always read the Bible literally. Why? Because especially in these, in these uh, sections that are poetry, it's figurative language, it's imagery, it's beauty. And so there are times where we read the Bible figuratively. And I realize this can be a very hot topic. <laughs> like, like we take great pride if we are in that camp that says, I read the Bible literally. We, we might think anything else compromises the truth of God's word. Of course, there are people maybe who are in another camp who are like, well, I read the Bible figuratively. <laughs> if you do that, well, you're going to miss out on the power of God's written word. In fact, I remember a, a national figure 
at one point who was uh, claiming to be a person of faith saying uh, that he, he doesn't think Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale. Well, I don't think that actually happened, right? Uh, others would say, well, I don't think there was an actual flood. I don't think Adam and Eve were actual, real, live, living, breathing human beings. They're just sort of archetypes and so on. Uh, so that might be the more li- uh, figurative camp. So the challenge that we have is discerning. When do we read the Bible literally? When do we read the Bible figuratively? When the text, when the passage, when what we're studying in the scriptures is using the figurative, then we read it figuratively. I mean, I, I'm kind of oversimplifying that. Uh, and again, this happens not just in these six books of biblical poetry. This happens in other places in the scripture that use more uh, poetic sort of language. Uh, Genesis chapter 49. Uh, Jacob summons his 12 boys and he speaks over each one. And he uses this really colorful, really uh, sort of beautiful figurative language. Uh, Judah is a lion's cub. Zebulun is a haven for ships. Issachar is a donkey. I wonder if he was upset about that. Well, Dan was a snake, so maybe he was more upset. Naphtali is a doe. Joseph is a vine. Benjamin a ravenous wolf. Jacob is speaking figuratively here. He's not actually making statements about his sons not being humans. He's speaking figuratively. And so really, it's not all that difficult to decipher that and to determine that. In fact, we use figurative language in our own speech. Uh, I could have died of embarrassment, we say. He was mad as a hornet. She was bored to tears. These are all colorful expressions that we use that are to be taken figuratively. And biblical language is no different. So we see this vivid imagery used in the scriptures. And I would say this too, even our Lord Jesus did the same. This is not reserved to Old Testament books of of ancient poetry. Jesus did the exact same thing. Uh, He called Herod a fox in Luke 13. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23. He called James and John the sons of thunder. Like, like Jesus used this sort of creative, colorful, vivid, figurative uh, speech. And so how do we approach the scriptures? Well, I'll just give you a little bit of insight in terms of how do I study the scripture? How do I approach it? I would say this. I tend to use the literal sense unless there's good reason not to. I, I, think, I think that's probably a very healthy way for us, church, to approach the scriptures. I, let's tend to use the literal sense of the scriptures, Unless there is really good reason, really compelling reason not to. And so, uh, like I just mentioned from Luke 13, when Jesus called Herod, calls Herod a fox, we may need to pause to consider there. Okay, is our Lord making a statement about this man? He's not actually a human. He's this roving dog-like creature. No. Using the literal approach there... Uh, I don't think there's good reason. I think there's good reason for us to consider using a figurative approach. Would Jesus perhaps be making a statement about the individual saying he's very sly and he's filled with cunning? Yeah. So I hope hope that what I'm imparting to you is is you you don't view as this is heretical to not view the Bible literally. This is a faithful way to study the scripture. I think I tend to view it literally until there's good reason not to. In which case, we understand, we discern what might be figurative. Okay, so 
uh, this morning, we have talked about how God wants us to understand biblical poetry. I've given us some tips for how we might approach it. Uh, some of you took notes on that. That's awesome. Uh, if you, if you want to have further conversation or need further study helps with that, I want to equip you to be faithful students of the Bible. But that's, those are good approaches for us to take. So we've talked about how God wants us to understand biblical poetry. But I think more than an academic exercise, which, you know, a lot of that is really heady and it's really kind of this, this systematic approach, this tedious work of biblical, and again, the ones who took the how to study the Bible class know, observation, interpretation, application. That's kind of our threefold step. It's, the, it's more than that. It's that God actually wants us to enjoy biblical poetry. He, he wants us to enjoy it as we engage it. U- ultimately, I think this is probably the most artistic, the most creative of all biblical genres. It's beautiful. It's captivating. It's soul-stirring. I think God wants us to enjoy it. Like how uh, many of the the Psalms, which were songs for the ancient peoples, these these Jewish uh, folk songs, many of them have been set to modern music, uh, which I absolutely love. We can experience the Psalms. That's a great way to experience the Psalms, is the words of these these Psalms, these poems, uh, set to modern music. But even if it's not through uh, song or in the, you know, in the... uh, spoken word, you know, verse beat poetry kind of experience. I think most of us are going to experience it by we're sitting down in our quiet time in our daily Bible reading that we'll experience biblical poetry. I think my uh, encouragement there is slow down. Don't rush through it. I think in some cases we just kind of rush through these books of poetry. Slow down. Take your time. Enjoy it. Don't rush it. In fact, one thing that would really serve us well is when we're studying a passage of biblical poetry that we would read it, but then we would pause and we would actually reread it in a different English translation. And maybe that happens over the course of a week. On Monday, you'll read it in the NIV, but then on Tuesday, you'll read it in the NASB. And on Wednesday, you'll read it in the New Living Translation. And there are lots of good English translations, but... uh, Read it in several different English translations rather than reading it in the exact same translation that you've been using for 20 years. Like, we have access to the beauty of God's word that we can experience. And I know, I, I'm right there with you, that I have a translation of the, of the Bible in English that I prefer, that I like, that I go to, that, I, that, is, that is that comfort place for me that I've done almost all of my Bible memory in. But it hits me in a new way when I read it in a different English translation. And so I would encourage you to do that. Don't, don't, just, don't just use the exact same one that you've always used. Uh, use the resources that we have at our fingertips. Read it, especially biblical poetry. Read it in different English translations. That's, that's one key. Slow down. Enjoy it. By the way, did you hear about the young kid who swallowed two pennies? Well, the doctor sent him home, but then he called to check in on the boy a little bit later. He asks the mom on the phone, uh, how's the boy doing? She re- replies, giving kind of a status, kind of an update on it. She says, No change. Sometimes we need a change. Sometimes we need to deviate from 
the translation that we've just fallen into using over and over and over and over. I'm not saying you have to throw it out. I'm saying just maybe expand and add a few others. Again, if you want further uh, conversation or resources on that, come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you about this, just the, the different English translations and how they were put together and uh, which ones read which ways. So please consider that. But I think as it comes to this idea, this biblical poetry, and I'm, I'm suggesting to us this morning that God wants us to enjoy it. That it, it has this way of helping us see and helping us appreciate the wisdom of God, the beauty around us. So Ecclesiastes is one of those books, chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Biblical poetry has this way of giving us language when our own words and thoughts and ideas fall short. It gives us language to help appreciate the beauty around us. It gives us language to proclaim these deep truths about God. So, for example, we believe that God is all-powerful. And so we might say, God is omnipotent. We believe that God is near, that he is a God who's involved actively in the affairs of his created order. And so we say, God is imminent. But just compare that to the scripture that, that Renee read for us from Job 37. These are the uh, insights that God gave this young man, Elihu, that's in poetic form. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. It's saying those theological truths that, that we would espouse. God is omnipotent. He's all power. God, God is imminent. He is near. But it's saying it in a way that's captivating. It captures your imagination. It stirs your soul. So God uses biblical poetry to do that. And, and I would just take the opportunity to say God uses other art forms to stir us and to motivate us as well, to encourage us. So this is poetry and art and sculptures and books and movies and dance and drama and architecture like all of these things we see the beauty of god on display through his people there's something about when we see something beautiful in nature or through art that draws us to god that helps us actually see and embrace and understand that god himself is beautiful that's declared in Psalm 27. David says in verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. So for thousands of years, humanity has been uh, captivated and stirred and moved by songs and stories that are creatively communicated. And we understand that God is the master of creativity. He's the one who invented it. He's the ultimate in creativity. And so he wants us to enjoy biblical poetry. He wants us to enjoy art in other forms. These are gifts that God has given us. Gifts that can be used to build up the church. Gifts that can help us grow spiritually. So ultimately, and this is, this is getting at my, my final point this morning as we're talking about biblical poetry. Uh, the Lord has given us biblical poetry uh, not just for the purpose of entertainment. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to enjoy it. But he has given us biblical poetry so that we might walk wisely. That we might walk in the wisdom of God's truth and God's way. 
And again, I, I'll, I'll repeat something I said earlier. The biblical books of poetry are surprisingly relevant. They are shockingly applicable and helpful. Song of Songs. It's a celebration of love. It's a celebration of a love between a husband and a wife. The book of Job. It helps us in times of suffering. Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Boy, that just kind of adjusts your attitude, doesn't it? That's the one where he says over and over, everything is meaningless. <laughs> like, the book of Ecclesiastes just forces you to look beyond this meaningless life. <laughs> Again, that's his language. <laughs> it just forces you to look into eternity. Lamentations gives you voice for those times of agony and heartache and suffering and hardship. The Psalms, although there are a variety of different kinds of Psalms, like so some of them are Psalms of lament, but for many of them, they are songs of praise. They, they, they praise an almighty God for all of his works and for who he is. And then Proverbs, I mean, it's just jam-packed with wise counsel. The, the Proverbs are just jam-packed. And in all of these, they're filled with inspiration and truth for our lives that should be lived out. So God gave us these books of biblical poetry that we might walk wisely. But I do say there's a great warning when it comes to the wisdom of the scriptures. A great warning. Solomon puts it plainly in Proverbs 26, 12. He says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, this is a really important warning because we've all acted foolishly. Not very many in here would say, well, I'm a fool. Which, by the way, a fool ultimately, according to the Bible, is one who does not acknowledge God. But by our actions, haven't we all forsaken God at one time or another? And so that's why there's this great warning here that we've all denied God one way or another. We've all acted foolishly. So we've all done things that are wrong. We've all done things that go contrary to God's commands, God's standards. We've sinned. And the Bible teaches that when we sin, we are separated from God. We are separated from this holy and loving creator. That at the end of the age... If we're still dead in our sin and not reconciled to God, we will be spending eternity in hell, in torment, apart from his presence. At the end of the age, the scriptures teach us this. All people will be judged. So there's a great warning here. But there's also great hope. Because we know that at the end of the age, as each individual stands before God for judgment... That those deemed righteous will spend eternity in paradise. They'll be delivered from the torment that awaits them. From the flames of hell that they deserve. The wise fear God. They, they realize God is the one who holds the universe in his hands. In fact, we have this teaching from our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Check this out. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the wise fear the Lord. And ultimate wisdom, my friends, is placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting that although you've done wrong, that although you deserve hell and an eternal separation from God, he has imparted his righteousness to you so that you're not going to be condemned, but you will be saved. And that happens only through faith. And that happens only as a gift of God imparted to us. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We just simply trust him. That's ultimate wisdom. And so I urge you this morning, trust in the Lord. Turn your entire life over to him. And that he would impart his wisdom to you. That he would guide you. That he would have you walk in his ways, in his paths. That he would make something beautiful out of your life. Here's what Solomon says in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Our prayer team will be available after the service here in the front. We invite you to come if you want to turn your life over to the Lord. If you have a burden that you're carrying, we, we would love to bless you and come alongside you in prayer. So friends, let's stay committed to pursuing him. Through all of the scriptures, just like we experienced this week, through all of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, growing even in our understanding of these books of biblical poetry and enjoying it in its beauty and its power that we might walk in God's wisdom all the days of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are all wise, all knowing, and all powerful. And you see us and you know us. Like David writes in Psalm 139, that you perceive our thoughts from afar. You know what we're thinking. You, you know what we're going to say before we say it. And so, Lord, in this quiet moment before you, we recognize that you are the creator. That you hold the world, you hold the cosmos in the palm of your hand. And so, Lord, would you forgive us for the ways that we've made it about us? I pray, Lord, for us to be a people committed to your word and committed to the, the diligent and sometimes tedious work of, of reading through scripture. And, Lord, I would pray that you'd bless us with enjoying your word, that we would feast on it, that we would grow because of your, your word that's alive, that it's active that it's working on our hearts and our lives, that we might become even more like your son, Jesus. And so God, thank you for the great truths that you've taught us through the word. Even this morning, I seal these things by the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't be merely hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And so Lord, we pray that you would accomplish that for your glory, for your honor, for your sake, for your kingdom cause. We thank you and we bless you. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.